All right, today is the official beginning of what we know to be holiday season, isn't it? Halloween, uh, how we enter into the Halloween. And I'm about to commit an unforgivable holiday faux pas. I'm going to talk about Christmas stuff. Yes, before Thanksgiving. And for some of you, this is anathema. No Christmas carols should be sung. No, 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 like decorations should be brought out of the attic. No, it is all pumpkin spice and orange and browns until after Thanksgiving. Then we can move to the red and green. But um, we're actually, I'm going to talk about a Christmas carol, at least to begin. And we're actually going to start a Christmas series this morning. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. And there's a fabulous line in there that goes like this. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Wherever God's curse went, sin and devastation and loss and hurt, it is there in those places that he makes his blessings flow. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something more than simply quote a Christmas carol. We're actually going to begin this Christmas series on, and we're entitling to make his blessings flow from that line. We are going to be looking at and combining um, a look at our, our reach emphasis, that we want to make disciples at King's Chapel who know God, who grow together, and then reach our world, and we are going to connect Christmas and reaching our world. And we're going to start this morning, we're going to start this morning at Psalm 67. As God's church, we have been called to be agents to make God's blessings throw, flow throughout the ends of the earth. And so this morning we turn to what is called the missionary hymn or psalm. Here, here it is, Psalm 67, to the choir master with strings, instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah, which we don't know what it means. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, Christmas, and we are starting a Christmas series, is inherently missional. Christmas is the display of the missionary heart of our God. And he said, I want to win them so badly that I'm willing to send my son to take on flesh to go into this world to win them back to me. Christian Christmas and missions goes together like peas and carrots, like the colors red and green, or better said, orange and blue, like cool weather and pumpkin spice, mission and Christmas goes together. You know, the first book of the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew actually begins in an interesting way. It is the gospel that we most know is dedicated or directed towards Jews towards those who are the Jewish audience. That's who Matthew has in mind. But at the beginning of the book, the very first people who show up in the book of Matthew and worship Jesus as king are magicians from the east, Gentiles from the farthest reaches of the world. And you know, how does the gospel of Matthew end? Matthew 28 and what we call the Great Commission, go therefore to all the nations, 
Listen, if you're writing to a Jewish audience and yet you talk about Gentiles being the first to come worship God and the call to go and reach Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is no accident. That means he did this on purpose. Matthew's retelling the gospel begins and ends with this in mind, the nations, the ends of the earth. Matthew begins his gospel by saying to the nations, come and see Jesus, and he ends it by telling the church, go and tell the nations about King Jesus. And you know what? I need to be reminded of this in my life, that God is about the nations. You know, in my life, I came out of college, and I was for the nations. I was passionate about doing missions work. I, I literally, I remember, I remember when the tsunami hit Indonesia and 100,000 people died. I remember sitting, I was a financial analyst for a company my first year out of, out of college. And I remember look, sitting there at my computer screen at an Excel spreadsheet on one side of the screen and then the news of what is going on in Indonesia on Thailand and the other. And I began to simply weep. And I was like, I can't sit here anymore. I have to go. So I went overseas. And then I went to grad school and then I got married and then I had children, four of them. And then I had to try to figure out how not to be scared all the time while I led a family, and then I led a church. In other words, my 30s happened. And you know what? I fear, I fear that I have lost sight of the nations because it's so easy, right? And then I'm an American, so it's even more easy to be more concerned about our politics and our inflation and our homes and our lives, and it's so easy for us to lose sight that we have a God whose heart is for all peoples. Psalm 67 is known as the missionary psalm because the psalm that reflects God's heart for the nations, his longings. And I want to emphasize the all of all peoples in all nations. Some scholars today have identified that there are at least 11,000 people groups. Some actually say by some identifications over 16,000 different ethnic groups in the world. There are groups of people that, is, that share a common language or a common cultural characteristics. And here in Psalm 67, in the Hebrew, this word for peoples or nations, there are three different words in the Hebrew that are used to reflect these words that are translated people or nations. In other words, the, the psalmist is trying to say, however you, however you think about peoples and races and ethnicities and, and, and cultures, we got, those people, that's the all that I'm talking about. That's the all. God's heart is for them all. Do we have a heart for the nations? Well, if we're going to get our, our heads out of, the, out of our own lives and of us and participate in God's call to the nations, then we need to see three things from this text. Three things this text gives us to lift us up to God's vision and God's call to the nations. First is the purpose of God for the nations. And this is found at the very center of the passage. Verses 3 through 5. He is quite redundant. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. At the core of this psalm is this proclamation, is this, that God's plan and purpose for the nations is joy in worshiping the Lord. That is the end of all things. God's purpose and delight for all peoples, is that we would delight in worship God as king. The chief end of man, our Westminster Confession of Faith, or Westminster Shorter Catechism that our, our kids memorize, and that hopefully you would as well. It says this, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is this. In other words, chief end means chief purpose. What's the purpose of your life? 
to glorify God and to enjoy him. And we most glorify God when we enjoy him. And therefore, God's purpose for all the nations is that they would come and worship God. This is why he chose Israel. This is why Christ died. This is why missions exist. This is why the church exists. Is so we might have a knowledge of God that would lead us to praise and worship Christ Jesus as king. And he wants to see all nations and peoples and tribes, from the north to the south, from the east and to the west, from the rich to the poor, from the young to the old, from the rural areas to the urban areas and every tribe and people and tongue to the ends of the earth. May they all praise the Lord. But the psalmist doesn't simply tell us that his purpose for the nations is to delight and worship the Lord. He also tells us exactly what it is about God that's going to lead them to do so. What leads people to worship God and to praise God? Now, what's your answer to that? Well, often I think we would say a knowledge of God. Perhaps we might say the gospel. But what is it that this psalm particularly hones in on? Why is it? What is it that makes the people glad in verse 4? It says this, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations. In other words, this is a prayer that the nations would come to rejoice over God's justice. God's judgment and his rule and his reign, his guidance over all the peoples of the earth. Now, who brings justice? Whose role is that? It is the government's. And when the government is simply one person, we call that a monarchy. And when there's the one person who is the monarch, we call him the king. That is what is being talked about here. That what would lead the nations to come and worship the Lord is when they see the justice and the goodness and the guidance and the rule and reign of the king, of the Lord. The kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus, is actually the thing that Jesus primarily comes to preach and teach about in the Gospels. More than any other subject that Jesus talks about as he comes to preach and teach is the topic that he consistently comes back to over and over and over again is this idea of the kingdom of God. And he preaches about this for three years to his disciples. And then in Acts chapter 1, as he's just about to be ascended into heaven and leave his earthly ministry, I love this. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says that he spends 40 days after the resurrection preaching about the kingdom of God. Now, his disciples are much like us. They don't get it. Jesus, for three years, preaches about the kingdom of God. He dies, is risen from the dead. He then gets up and spends another 40 days preaching to them about the kingdom of God. At this point, you'd think he'd had their attention. And 40 days, he preaches about the kingdom of God. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say this. They have one last opportunity to ask Jesus a question. Here's what they say. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Oh, vey. Right? Didn't, you know, sometimes you almost wonder, like, did Jesus simply look at them and just go, that's it. Oy vey, I'm out. I'm out of here. I'm going to heaven. No. What are, they, what are they about? They're about their small kingdom. Their small kingdom. John Calvin actually commented, he said that there may not be a statement in all the Bible that displays the apostles' theological confusion more than this question. They don't get it. Still, Jesus has been with them all this time, and all they can think about is a political solution to Israel's problems. Will you come and make little tiny Israel make things be okay? They want to be powerful and strong and rich and free, and boy, does that sound familiar. And you look at the passage, and you think Jesus wants to just go, you know what? I'm out. 
I'm going to go hang out in heaven, and you guys do you. But you know what? What he does is he displays one final time in the ascension that his kingdom is about the whole earth. Because when Jesus ascends, does he ascend to a throne in Jerusalem over merely Israel? No. What does he do? He ascends to the throne room that is in heaven over all the earth. In other words, what he is about is the ends of the earth. And therefore, we can ask this question. What is the good news that would lead the nations, that would lead all peoples to come and worship God? The good news is this, is is the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king and that he is a good king who has come to set his creation right so that one day all peoples and all the earth will come to dwell with God as their father and there will be perfect shalom on the earth. That is the good news that we bring. It is the truth that there is a seated and enthroned King Jesus who has come and will come ultimately to restore all things as far as the curse is found. He will make his blessings flow. And indeed, the the vision we get from the very end of the Bible is exactly this. That from that throne room flows blessings that would bring healing to the nations and that will end in worship See if you can follow along that that outline. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal. Where is it flowing from? The throne of God. And of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side, the river of the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it, and his servants will worship him. When the king comes, healing comes in his wings, and the nations come and gather, and they worship the purpose of God for the nations, and therefore the message of the gospel is for the nations is nothing less than this, that the king has come to restore for himself all the heavens and the earth, and so bow in joyous worship to Jesus as king of kings and as Lord of Lords. Now, back in the day, when someone became a king and we had no telephones and no telegraphs, there wasn't, well, you didn't really have black smoke that the whole world could see, like the Vatican. There was no internet. What would you do in order to tell the world that there was a new king? They would have to send out heralds, witnesses who had seen the king enthroned. And that is exactly what Jesus says. In Acts chapter one, it's interesting, He ascends, and then he says what? Right before he ascends, he says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. (laughs) And what's interesting is what happens after he ascends? They sit there, and what do they do? They're staring into the sky. They They are just so much so that angels have to come up and go, hey, guys, run along. It's, we have some work to be done here. And what is the work that is to be done? This is point two. The work that is to be done is the blessing of God to the nations. And that's our role. First, verse one of Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Say, law, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. The main prayer that bookends this psalm from the beginning is that the psalmist prays in light of God's purposes for the nations. The psalmist knows that God's purpose is the nations would be healed and come to worship God. And so his prayer is this, that God's people would come to know God's blessings in such a way that they would then let the other nations of the world know about the blessings that are found in God. 
If the king wants to be known as a healer and a blessing, then the way to do that is to simply start blessing a group of people. And then as the world sees how that group of people is blessed, the nations begin to gather and see, man, living under this king is good. And this is our role. As blessed witnesses, there is a link between verses one and verses two. David, the psalmist prays, would we be blessed? And do you understand, you remember, you recognize it? There's a passage here, it's the ironic benediction, the benediction by Aaron. May God be gracious to us. Would he bless us? Would he give us his grace and his presence? And he asked in verse two, so that, bless us, so that the earth may know about your saving power. And other, bless us so that we might bless the nations. God's missionary method throughout redemptive history in the Bible is this, to bless a people so that they would then be a means of blessing to other people. This is actually what we see from the very call of Israel. And under the Aaronic benediction, it says, I bless you and, and, and show you my face. That's what he's mixing that with a passage from Genesis chapter 12, when the whole nation of Israel begins, when God calls Father Abraham, and he says this in verses 2 of chapter 12 of Genesis, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's mixing in this psalm that, that God's blessing of graciousness in, the, in Aaron's benediction with the call upon Abraham that he is being blessed in order to bless the nations. God blesses so that we might bless others. He never calls you into an intimate relationship with him without then sending you out in sacrificial service. This is the pattern of the whole Bible. Rather, God blesses you up. He fills up your tank, not simply so you can have a happy and healthy and wealthy life and simply muddle through this world and then get to heaven and have an even happier life. No, he gives you his blessing so that you might devote your life to sacrificial service on behalf of others. And here's where the danger is. Here's a warning application for you. We are prone to disconnect God's blessings in our lives from God's purposes for our lives. That we, if we land on when we see God's blessings is that's the ultimate end. I am simply a depository of God's blessing and that's the end of the story. Then that is a disconnection that will rot your soul. This is actually the pattern when God blesses people. Let me give you an illustration of what it might look like. In the Old Testament, in, in, in the book of Exodus, as, as Israel's wandering in the wilderness, God provides for them and blesses them abundantly with food, a food called manna. And he gives them certain instructions about what they were to do with manna. And he says, listen, get just enough manna to feed yourself and to feed your family. I've given the manna for you to feed yourself and feed your family. But if you get more than that and try to hoard it and try to keep it for yourself, what would happen to manna overnight? It would rot. It would make your home stink. It would make your home wormy. It get, got gross really fast. And isn't this the American church? A people who have been blessed with so much manna, and yet it is rotting at, the very, at our very core and at our gut. You know, the preacher with the largest church in America right now, here are the names of his best-selling Christian books. It is your time. Activate your dreams. Become a better you today. Keys for improving your life. Your best life now. Does that sound like I bless you so that you might bless others? 
Or does that sound like some bastardized version of Christianity where we make it all about us? Us. We have lost our way and made God's blessings about us and not him. And the message of Christianity and the message of the Bible and even the message of the gospel is God, not us. He is the end goal in all this. That's where the nations point to at the end. And worshiping God. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 and 23 says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but glory to your name. Now maybe you're thinking, what motivates, is God's motivation in blessing us in order that we might make much of him? And the answer is, yes! Yes, that is why he blesses you, so that you might exalt him and worship him. And you understand if you get this, that that in and of itself is a blessing. If you hear the song of prayer in Psalm 67, it can be life-altering in a very positive way because you can see the blessing of God is both for you, but then it doesn't end with you, but actually gives you a purpose. You see, Psalm 67 is calling us into the blessing of God's purposes, that we are to be a fount of living water in the world around us. God has given me the gospel for a reason, and that reason is so that other people around me may know King Jesus and worship him. God has given us wealth, not so that we can live happy, healthy, whole lives and a comfort until we go to heaven, but so we can take that wealth and give it to the world so that King Jesus might be proclaimed. And this is so freeing because we live in a culture and a world in which we tell our children, stay safe. Don't extend yourself. Don't do much. Stay secure. And it's killing our kids. It's killing our kids. It's a purposeless life that is simply us on a treadmill. And what my children need and what your children most need is not the security of a suburban home but is the chance to die. That's what our children need. To die to themselves. That life is not about them, but life is about something better. It's about the king. And this is what your life is to be about. Extending the glorious name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And there is a lot of places we could go. There are, so right now, 6,000 different ethnic groups who have no access to the gospel. 6,000. Of the 11,000 to 16,000 that exist, never heard of the saving power of Jesus. It's not that they have heard the gospel and rejected it. It's that it has never come to them. It's never come to them. And by the way, there's a whole other billion people who have very little access to the gospel. One half of the peoples of the world have little to no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we have a purpose. It's to extend the gospel to them. Now that feels weighty, doesn't it? That's kind of a big job. That's no small thing. And so if we're gonna take on this weight, yes, you have to understand God's vision, understand God's call to be a blessing, but if you bear that weight to bring children into your home that don't necessarily have them belong to you, to send your children out to dangerous places, to send your money, to send your resources, to extend yourself beyond what feels comfortable and even what feels possible, then we need some help. We need some hope. 
And this is the last thing I think Psalm 67 gives us. It's the promise of God for the nations. Verse 6 says this, The earth has yielded its increase. And then he just repeats himself three times. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the nations of the earth fear him. Two promises I want you to see here. First is this, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. But not prosperity gospel blessing. You will be blessed nor to bless the nations. Who is God most likely to bless? He blesses so that you might bless others. And therefore, the people who receive the blessings, all the spiritual and even material blessings of God that are best for mission are those who have shown themselves to be faithful in mission. In the parable of the the servants, of the stewards, it is those who are found to be faithful with little who are then given more. And so if you're driving a bus and that bus says to the nations, and that is what your life is about, on the back of that truck, that is the place that God's blessings will fill. That's what he's going to fill. And so the blessing is not a payment for service rendered. It's a power and joy for a mission to be accomplished. And in fact, in Acts chapter 1, if we were to go back there, the angels go, hey, guys, he's not there anymore. He told you to go do something. The first thing he told you to do is go wait. And that's what they do. They go into Jerusalem, and they wait, and they pray. And a few weeks later, what happens? There's something called Pentecost in which the Spirit of God falls with power, spiritual blessings, And immediately upon receiving those spiritual blessings, what begins to happen? The nations. That's Acts 2. Every tribe, tongues, and nations begin to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel of Acts is about. So you have to, if you want a fresh wind of the Spirit of God, if we want to be a church that actually experiences God's fresh wind here, then we must become a people who have a longing for the King to be known and a commitment that we will be his witnesses in this place and to participate in what he is doing to the ends of the earth. When you commit your life, when you commit your prayers, when you commit your focus on being a blessing, well, that is the act. That is the act of leaping into a mighty, rushing river of spiritual blessings. It's like jumping into the Mississippi. Here's the second promise, that the purpose of God will be finished. He said, I'm going to the nations. And verse seven says, let all the ends of the earth fear him. God shall bless the end of the earth, all things, at the end of all things, the nations will come to worship the king because he is gracious. He aims to be known among all the peoples. And because he is king, by the, by the way, what do we call a king? We call a king a sovereign. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and missions is important. The sovereignty of God means God has the right and the right and the power to rule. And because he is sovereign, we can know that when he promises that he will bring his kingship to the ends of the earth, that those promises, they won't fail. So when he says something like this in John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in, and they will listen to my voice. That promise will come to pass. When he says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end of the world will come. That promise will come to pass. And why will his promises not fail? Now here I want to do some gospel work. Bear with me for just a few minutes. A longer conclusion this morning. Matthew chapter 16 is another great promise about about God's work not failing in this world. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here, verses 13 through 21. Now here's what it says. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied this way, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, this is Jesus' fancy name for Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the promise we like, right? He goes on, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'm moving past that really quickly because I'm not going to address it, and it's too confusing. Just don't listen to that part. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then on the third day, he will be raised. Now here's the context of Matthew 16. Jesus is preaching in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a city in the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was a city built by a man who is the son of Herod the Great. There were museums, and there was art, and it was an educated city. But outside of Caesarea Philippi was a mountain called Mount Hermon. And there was, we know from archaeological studies and writings from the time, that there was a prominent cave at the base of Mount Hermon. And there was folklore about this mountain and this cave. The belief of the area was that Baal was a pagan god, who was also known as the Canaanite god of death that this is where Baal hibernated for the winter. <laughs> I know we're in bizarre territory. That paganism is bizarre. But I want you to see something really quickly. Peter calls Jesus the son of the living God, and he's doing it in the context in front of the cave of the man, one who is known as the God of death. And it's generally thought that by scholars that Jesus is teaching in front of this cave. And it's in front of this cave that, he, that Peter prepares Jesus, the son of the living God, and Baal, the son of the God of death. And then Jesus turns to Peter and essentially says this, Peter, you've identified me as the son of life. That's great. And so in light of your confession, let me identify you. Here's what you are, Peter. And he says what? You are Peter the rock. Now we love that nickname. Don't we all wish we were the rock? We have an actor called The Rock, and he doesn't look like you and I do, right? He looks like a rock. He says, in Greek, he says, Peter, you are Petros. Now, we think that's pretty cool. It's a cool nickname. But we get a different understanding of the full grasp of what Jesus is saying here if we actually understand the full context. Remember, Jesus is speaking in front of something called Mount Hermon. It's a mountain. What is a mountain? It is an enormous rock. And the word in the Greek for mountain in this case is petros, with an A. And so here's what Jesus says. Here's the promise. Peter, this is the mountain, petros, and here's you, petros. You're just a little rock, Peter. We look at that and go, man, Peter must be strong and big. This is Peter like he's coming out going, Ur. No, Jesus is saying, no, your mission is to take the hill, and you're just a tiny little rock at the base of it. And yet it is here that Jesus says, it is upon this small stone called Peter and the church that I will overcome this massive place, this massive place 
that has the God of death that resides at the core of it. In the face of cosmic evil, in the face of a huge rock in the wilderness, he says this, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon, my small church upon you, and you will then prevail against this mountain. Now, in the short answer here, the gates of hell will be prevailed against. That's what he's saying. You, this little rock, is going to go up against this mountain, and you're going to prevail against it. Now, what is this phrase, gates of hell? Okay, what's going on there is the cave. They put, a, they put a gate over the cave so that little kids don't go wandering into the God of death's house. It's a bad thing if your kids are wandering on the base of the mountain and they're hanging around the God of death, and so they put a door there. And so the image here is, hey, you're going to attack the gates of hell. We tend to think of this verse as being Satan is going to attack the church. But you know what? Gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive. They're to keep you out. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter and to the church is this, you're going to attack the gates of hell, you, the little rock, you're so small, and yet you have this big job to do, but the gates of hell, they will not be able to keep you back. This one little pebble will become like something enormous and it will become something mighty. Now, how is that possible? How is the church going to invade death in hell itself and bring light into the darkness, into the very cave of the God of death? How is that going to happen? Verse 21, here's what Jesus said. Here's where Matthew goes. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and die and then be raised up on the third day. In other words, what's the picture here? And what is the hope for a missions church? A people who have been given a task. We are one little tiny rock. And we have a mountain to climb. The mountain of death, nonetheless. And what's the answer? How? What's the hope for us? Is that we have a king who went before us and he invaded the very realms of death himself through his cross and he was raised again which means this, death and darkness are not stopping the church. So he promises all the nations of the earth will come. You will be successful. And how does he guarantee that promise? Because your king has gone before you into death itself. He has led the charge. He has led the charge. And the great hope and confidence that the Christian missionary movement will actually come to completion, that we will reach all tribes and tongues and nations, and that all peoples will come around the throne room saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. Is because the lamb died and was rose again. So my call to you this morning is follow the king and let's charge darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to confess that there was darkness in my home yesterday. And Lord, I am overwhelmed by this call of what it would look like to be someone who actually leads a church to get more involved in missions. I can't even, like, get through a Saturday morning without yelling at my kids. And I'm overwhelmed by the task in front of me. God, I confess it is too much for me. It is too much. But Lord, I long for my life to matter and I long for this church to matter. And I thank you it's a, that it's a part of our story. Would you restore it again? Would you remind us again of our role in this world? And Lord, where we feel weak, and we do, 
we feel like a pebble in front of a mountain of death. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would come by your spirit and fill us up. Bless us with the very might of God so that we might reach our neighbors and reach our city and we might send people to the ends of the earth so that we might proclaim the goodness of the king. God, would you bless us with such a sense of purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.